If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. This is part three of a three-part series I'm doing on Charles Manson. If you haven't heard the first two parts yet, I suggest you go back and start with those. We'll be right here waiting for you. And now, on with the show. They rode mostly in silence that night. Nobody even felt like listening to the radio. It was August 8th, 1969. Tex Watson was driving. Even though Linda Kasabian was with them, and she was the only one of the four who had a valid driver's license. Susan Atkins and Pat Krenwinkel rode in back. Before they left, Charlie had given them some explicit instructions about how to dress and what to bring with them. They all wore dark clothing, and they were told to bring knives with them, among other items. Charlie kept harping on them not to forget their knives, even though he didn't say why. That didn't stop Pat from forgetting where she put hers, but by the time they were ready to go, she decided she couldn't keep them waiting any longer, so she went without the blade. Charlie told each of them just enough of what they needed to know for that night's mission, Only Tex Watson knew exactly what they were supposed to do once they reached the house on Cielo Drive. The women may have suspected something, but officially, as far as they knew, they were just going to do another one of their regular creepy crawls. That's what they called their nighttime missions Charlie sent them out on, where they'd break into someone's house while they were sleeping. Usually just to perform some innocent pranks by moving some stuff around, or to steal a few valuables. But no one ever got hurt in any of those missions. Not before. Ominously, though, just before they were about to drive away, Charlie called out to Susan Atkins and told her to do something witchy. Throughout the drive, the women whispered to each other about just what it was they were supposed to do that night. Tex never said a word. They all knew something was up. Things were different around the ranch lately. Charlie was on edge all the time now, more than they'd ever seen him before. Things weren't going well for the family. It all started back in May when Tex tried to swindle a two-bit drug dealer who went by the name Lotsa Papa out of some money and ended up shooting the guy. At least then they had a stroke of luck because even though the guy lived, he never reported the shooting to the police. Then Bobby Beausoleil got arrested for the botched robbery and murder of Gary Hinman. That one really got to Charlie because he'd actually been there in the guy's home that weekend and had even cut off a part of the guy's ear. If Bobby Beausoleil wanted to rat them out, he could put Charlie and some of the others who were involved behind bars for many years. It didn't help Charlie's mood any when word got back to him that Mary and Sandy Good got arrested for using some stolen credit cards. What Charles Manson needed more than anything was a win. Something to put him back on top and proved to his followers that everything he'd been telling them about Helter Skelter was true. 
Even though Tex had been to the house on Cielo before, he still managed to get lost along the way. Somehow they ended up in Beverly Hills and he had to turn the car around and head the other way to get them back on track. It was past midnight by the time Tex guided the yellow 59 Ford up the steep drive to the house on Cielo. He stopped at the electronic gate and told the women to wait for him as he got out. He took a set of bolt cutters out of the car and climbed a telephone pole and snipped the wires connecting to the main house and guest cottage. Then he backed the car down the hill and parked it. He led the three women back to the house on foot. He had a 22 caliber pistol stuffed into his pants and a coil of white rope draped over his shoulder. Tex climbed a fence onto the property and instructed the women to follow him. Once they were all over the other side of the fence, they stood together in the blue light of darkness. The house was close by. They could see it framed in the distance, a dark shape with golden lights spilling out of the windows, indicating that people were still inside and awake. Tex turned to the women and told them matter-of-factly that they were all going to go inside that house and murder everyone. None of the women dared to object. This was an order that had come straight from Charlie, which was just as good as a direct order from God. As far as they were concerned, the people inside that house were already as good as dead. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm so happy to have you as part of my own cult. And this is The Conspirators. It was around midnight when 18-year-old Steve Parent showed up unannounced at the house on Cielo Drive. He was friends with William Gerritsen, the property's caretaker, who lived in the guest house behind the main building. So he felt comfortable showing up in the middle of the night offering to sell them a clock radio for some quick cash. There were no takers, but they were nice enough to offer him a beer. After he drank it down, he got back in his car and headed back down the long, curving driveway toward the main gate. He had to roll his window down in order to push the button that would open the gate. It was right after that when Tex Watson rushed at him out of the shadows. He recognized Tex, having met him on a few occasions when the house was still occupied by Terry Melcher. Parent saw the knife in Tex's hand and he begged for his life, even as Tex slashed at him with it. Tex cut him across his left arm. Then, ignoring Charlie's instructions to not make any noise, he took out the twenty-two caliber pistol and shot Parent four times at point-blank range. The boy slumped dead across the front seat of his car. One of the neighbors who lived nearby woke up out of a deep sleep when she thought she heard gunshots. When she didn't hear anything further, she shrugged it off and went back to sleep. Likewise, a private security patrol officer was sitting in his car parked on a street nearby when he heard the shots. He phoned in what he heard to the Los Angeles Police Department but the officer who took the call never deployed any units to investigate for some reason. Director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress and model Sharon Tate, had been renting the house at 10050 Cielo Drive since February 1969. On that night in August, Polanski was away in Europe, working on another movie, leaving his wife, who was eight and a half months pregnant, behind. But Sharon Tate was far from alone that night. They often had house guests coming and going, which is why no one thought it was particularly unusual when Steve Parent came knocking on their door looking to sell them a radio so late. 
Besides Sharon Tate, the other people inside the house that night were Tate's friend and former lover, Jay Sebring, Polanski's friend, aspiring screenwriter, Wojciech Farkowski, and Farkowski's girlfriend, Abigail Folger, heir to the Folger coffee fortune. Tex Watson and the three women pushed Steve Parent's car up the driveway and out of sight. Watson ordered Linda Kasabian to head down to the front gate to keep watch while he, Susan Atkins, and Pat Krenwinkel continued across the wide lawn to the house. They searched for an open window, and when they finally found one, Tex cut the screen out and he climbed in. He went unobserved to the front of the house and let Pat and Susan in through the front door. At the time, Frykowski was sleeping on the living room couch. He was startled awake when he heard Tex and the women whispering to each other. He blinked away the sleep and asked who they were. Tex kicked him in the head and told him, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. Pat remembered she didn't have her knife with her, so she went down the driveway to find Linda and borrowed hers. When she got back to the house, Tex ordered her and Susan to round up everyone else inside and bring them to the living room. At first, Abigail Folger, Jay Sebring, and Sharon Tate weren't particularly surprised to see strangers in the house. But when the women threatened them with knives and ordered them to come with them, that's when they began to feel afraid. In the living room, Watson took the rope he brought with him and began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks, slinging the rope between them up over the ceiling beams. Sebring protested, telling them couldn't they see she was pregnant? Watson shot him. Pat took Abigail Folger back to her bedroom to get her purse. She only had $70 inside, which wouldn't make Charlie happy, since part of the reason he'd sent them there had been to rob them. While the two women were in the bedroom, Tex took his knife and stabbed Sebring several times in the abdomen. They didn't have enough rope to bind Frakowski, so Susan Atkins had tried tying his hands together with a dish towel she got from the kitchen. But Frykowski managed to slip free, and he began grappling with her. Susan fell to the ground, and she managed to stab him several times in the legs. This left him unable to walk, but he was still able to crawl away out the front door to the porch. But Tex caught up to him and bashed him in the head with the butt of the gun several times, breaking the gun's right grip in the process. Then he dragged him back inside, stabbing him several more times, then shot him twice for good measure. Down at the bottom of the driveway, Linda Kasabian could hear a series of horrible cries coming from inside the house. Even though she was with Charlie, she had her limits. Those terrible screams tore a hole inside her, and she knew she couldn't go along with this anymore. She had to do something. She rushed up to the house and tried telling Susan Atkins that she heard someone coming and they needed to get out of there. In the meantime, Abigail Folger managed to break away from Pat Krenwinkel, who was supposed to be guarding her. She burst out a bedroom door to the pool area, but Pat was right on her heels and she tackled her to the ground. Pat stabbed Folger to death. The coroner would later report she'd been stabbed 28 times. Frykowski was losing a lot of blood, but he was still able to keep crawling out of the lawn. Tex Watson followed him and stabbed him more than 50 times. It's not known for certain who killed Sharon Tate. At one time or another, both Watson and Atkins took credit for it. Sharon Tate begged for them to allow her to live long enough to give birth to her baby, but the pair wouldn't listen. She begged for her life as either Watson or Atkins or both stabbed her 16 times. Watson and the three women hurried to clean up any fingerprints or evidence they may have left behind. But like the botched robbery and murder at Gary Hinman's house, they weren't very thorough about it. Tex could see how shaky Pat Krenwinkel was about the murder, and he didn't like it. 
There was a guest house out back, and he ordered Pat to head over there and check it out, and if anyone was inside, kill them. There actually was someone living in the guest house at the time, the caretaker, William Garretson. But Pat was so freaked out by the murder, she lied to Tex and told him she peeked in the window and saw no one inside. Originally, Garretson claimed he slept through the murders, although years later, he would admit he'd partially witnessed the crimes. Before they left, they remembered Charlie's order to do something witchy. Susan Atkins took the towel she'd used to bind Frykowski's hands and dipped it in Sharon Tate's blood. Then she wrote the word pig on the house's front door. Watson was fuming when they got back to the car. Things hadn't gone as smoothly as he'd planned it out in his mind. Linda was already at the car waiting for them, and she looked petrified. Tex swore loudly when Susan admitted that she lost her knife back at the house. It was too late now to go back for it. They drove down Benedict Canyon Drive and traded their bloody clothing out for clean clothes they'd brought with them. They tossed the bloody garments along with the remaining knives and the twenty-two pistol out on the side of the road and headed back towards Spawn Ranch. At around 1 a.m., they stopped off in a residential neighborhood and used a hose connected to one of the houses to rinse themselves off. They tried to be quiet about it, but the homeowner woke up and came out to see what they were doing. The guy chased them off his property, but not before noting the license plate number of the car as it sped away. When they got back to Spawn Ranch, Charlie was furious to learn they'd only managed to steal $70. Weren't these people supposed to be rich? Where were all the valuables? Even worse, it didn't sound like they'd done enough so police would blame the crime on the Black Panthers the way they'd planned. Well, if you want a job done right, you have to do it yourself. He got in the car and headed back to the house on Cielo Drive. There, he proceeded to wipe down some more surfaces, and he moved some things around, staging the scene. He tossed a towel over Jay Sebring's head. Then he found a large American flag and draped it over the sofa near Sharon Tate's bloody body. Surely an American flag next to a dead pregnant actress would get the media's attention. When he felt everything was in place, he got back in the car and headed home to get some sleep. Things were bound to get busy once the news exploded. Charlie slept late, so he missed the first few news reports about the slaughter at the house on Cielo. Only a select few members of Charlie's inner circle knew that it had been Charlie's followers who had committed the horrific murders. And although the bloodbath on Cielo became national news, the one thing that didn't come out of any news stories were any possible involvement by the Black Panthers. Charlie was enraged. What the hell did it take to start a riot anyway? That night, Charlie put on a good face for his followers. They all smoked some weed and sang songs while Manson played the guitar. But after everyone went to bed, Manson summoned together Tex, Susan, Pat, Linda, and two others, Stephen Clem Grogan and Leslie Van Houten. Manson told them the murders the night before had been handled badly, and now they were going to have to do it all over again. This time, though, he'd personally be there to supervise. They managed to cram all seven members of their party uncomfortably into the Ford. Manson barked orders at Linda behind the wheel to drive. It seemed to several of the people who were along for the ride that night that Manson didn't really seem to know where he was going. But eventually they found their way to a familiar home on Waverly Drive in the upper middle class neighborhood of Los Feliz. A year earlier, Manson's old friend Phil Kaufman had introduced him to a guy named Harold True who lived on Waverly Drive. But it wasn't Harold's house they would visit that night, but the one next door. There lived a couple named Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. Leno ran a chain of grocery stores, while Rosemary was co-owner of a boutique. 
They weren't mega rich like the people on Cielo Drive, but to Manson, who had grown up poor, this neighborhood was just as ritzy as any other. They parked in front of the LaBianca house and Charlie and Tex got out. Manson was armed with a pistol, and Tex was carrying a bayonet. Charlie led Tex over to a window and motioned for Tex to peek inside. Leno LaBianca was asleep on the couch with a newspaper draped over his face. The back door was unlocked, and Charlie and Tex went inside. Charlie prodded LaBianca awake with the barrel of the gun. Leno woke up, startled and asked them who they were and what they wanted. Manson calmly told LaBianca that no one was going to get hurt as long as he did what he was told. Then he ordered the man to roll over onto his stomach. He tied his hands with a leather thong he'd brought with him. He asked if anyone else was in the house, and LaBianca admitted his wife was sleeping in one of the bedrooms. Manson went and got her. He ordered her to sit on the couch near her husband. Manson took LaBianca's wallet then went outside to get Pat and Leslie. He ordered them to move Rosemary LaBianca into the bedroom. Then he told Tex to make sure everyone took part in what was to come. Charlie drove away in the Ford with Linda, Clem, and Susan, leaving Tex behind in the house with Pat and Leslie. They pulled pillowcases over Leno and Rosemary's heads, then nodded their heads and mouths with lamp cords to gag them. Pat Krenwinkel was terrified. She later claimed that she didn't want to murder anyone that night, but she didn't want to disobey orders, so she went and got a knife from the kitchen. Tex stabbed Leno through the throat with the bayonet. Rosemary heard her husband's gurgling cries and she tried dragging herself off the bed and onto the floor. Pat stabbed her several times, then Tex came into the bedroom with the bayonet and finished her off. Pat went into the living room where she discovered that Leno was still alive. Tex stabbed him again. Then either Pat or Tex carved the word war into Leno's stomach. Pat stabbed him in the belly with a long-tined meat fork, then pushed a small kitchen knife up into his throat. Manson had demanded a horrific crime scene, and by God, they were going to give him one. Leslie hadn't done much to participate in the murders up to this point, so Tex ordered her to mutilate Rosemary's body. She stabbed her several times in the legs and buttocks, but Tex didn't think she showed much enthusiasm for it. They wiped the place down for fingerprints, then they wrote more messages and blood on the walls. This time they wrote the words rise and death to pigs. Pat added the words helter-skelter to one of the walls, although she misspelled it and added a letter A to the word helter. Afterwards, they were exhausted and starving. They raided the refrigerator for snacks. They chowed down on chocolate milk and watermelon, leaving the watermelon rinds in the sink. While this was going on, Charlie was still looking for some more opportunities for murder and mayhem. At first, Linda drove them to a mostly black neighborhood where they emptied the contents of Leno LaBianca's wallet, then tossed it away. A patrol car pulled up while they were walking along and the police officers asked them what they were doing. Just taking a walk, Manson told them. The police officers were satisfied with this answer and let them go. Charlie told Linda to drive them all up to Venice. He asked her if she knew anyone who lived around there. Linda admitted that she'd once met an actor named Saladin Nader, who lived in an apartment in the area. Charlie thought that murdering another actor would be perfect. They drove to the man's apartment, and he handed Linda a knife and told her to go up there and cut the man's throat. Linda tried protesting and saying she couldn't do that, even though this sort of rebellion would almost certainly lead to a beating later on. They all headed inside, but Linda led them to the wrong apartment, and no one answered the door when they knocked. 
They tried one of the other apartments, but eventually Linda told them that she couldn't remember which one the actor lived in. They ended up heading home as the dawn came creeping up over the horizon. Tex, Pat, and Leslie had already hitchhiked their way back to Spawn Ranch by the time they got there. Despite leaving a mountain of evidence behind at each crime scene, it took police some time to connect the dots between them. This seems to have been in part because the various departments involved didn't communicate well with one another, as well as the fact that the detectives in charge each had their own pet theories about who was responsible. L.A. County Sheriff's detectives noted early on the similarities between the murders of Gary Hinman by Bobby Beausoleil and the Tate murders. They tried telling the LAPD detectives in charge of the Tate murders about the possible connection, but the LAPD had already made up their minds that the Tate murder had been drug-related since a small quantity of drugs were found on the scene. On April 12, 1969, the LAPD told the press that they had ruled out any connections between the Tate and LaBianca murders as well. On August 16th, the sheriff's office raided Spawn Ranch and arrested Manson and 25 other Manson family members for their involvement in an auto theft ring. They were suspected of stealing several Volkswagens and converting them into dune buggies. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. It took months before detectives were finally able to connect the dots between the crimes. By then, tips were beginning to come in from members of the Straight Satan's motorcycle gang, as well as one of the jail dormitory mates of Susan Atkins, who learned of the Manson family's involvement in the murders. On December 1st, 1969, the LAPD issued warrants for the arrest of Tex Watson, Pat Cranwinkle, and Lyndon Kasabian in the Tate case. Eventually, Susan Atkins, Leslie Van Houten, and Charles Manson would be added to the indictments. Lyndon Kasabian was granted immunity in return for her testimony against the others since she had not actively participated in any of the murders. The judge reluctantly allowed Charles Manson to act as his own attorney. But because of Manson's repeated violations of a gag order and the several outlandish pre-trial motions he offered, the order was rescinded before the trial began. On Friday, July 24, 1970, the first day of testimony, Manson appeared in court with an X he carved into his forehead. He told the judge, because he was told he was too incompetent to act as his own defense, that he had chosen to X himself from society. He would later convert the X into a swastika, Within a couple of days, several other Manson family members, including the female defendants, followed suit and exed themselves too. While the trial was still going on, other freed Manson family members went about trying to keep anyone else from testifying. Prosecution witness and former family member Paul Watkins was badly burned in a suspicious fire in his van. A family member named Barbara Hoyt, who had overheard Susan Atkins discussing the murders, was found sprawled on a Honolulu curb after someone spiked a hamburger she'd been eating with a mega dose of LSD. By November of 1969, before the trials were to begin, 
some members of the Manson family had begun to squeal on one another. On November 5th, police were called to a beach house in Venice where several family members were now living. One of the members named John Philip Hawk, also known as Zero, was found dead of a gunshot wound to the head. The other witnesses claimed Zero had been high and playing Russian roulette. Yet when police checked the gun, they discovered it was fully loaded. Nonetheless, they still wrote it off as a suicide. On December 1st, 1969, the same day Tex, Pat, and Linda were placed under arrest, another former family member named Joel Pugh was found dead in a London hotel room. His wrists had been cut, and his throat had been slit. There was no suicide note left behind, but someone had written something on the mirror. The hotel manager remembered seeing the words Jack and Jill, although London police didn't keep a record of what had been written, and they ultimately ruled the death a drug-induced suicide. Ronald Hughes was originally signed on to serve as Charles Manson's attorney, but two weeks before the start of the trial, he dropped Manson as a client and chose to represent Leslie Van Houten instead. Then in November 1970, Hughes disappeared during a camping trip during a 10-day recess of the Tate-LaBianca murder trial. His body was discovered in March 1971, but his cause of death could not be determined. Rumors have long existed that he was murdered by some Manson family members loyal to Charlie. Officially, the LAPD lists 12 unsolved homicides that may have been committed by members of the Manson family. Although some investigators who have studied the case have found evidence linking as many as 35 suspicious deaths to the family. Susan Atkins, Pat Krenwinkel, Leslie Van Houten, and Charles Manson all received first-degree murder convictions for their participation in the Tate-LaBianca murders. During the penalty phase of the trial, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork announcing to the press afterwards that he was the devil. They were all sentenced to death. On November 30th, 1969, Tex Watson was arrested in McKinney, Texas for the murders. He fought extradition long enough to not be tried along with his other co-conspirators. He was found guilty of seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. He was also sentenced to death. In February 1972, the death penalty was struck down by the California Supreme Court and all five death sentences were reduced to life in prison. On November 8, 1972, the body of a Vietnam Marine combat veteran named James Willett was discovered buried in a shallow grave near Gernsville, California. It was later discovered that he had been forced to dig his own grave before he was shot. His station wagon was found outside a house in Stockton where several Manson family members were living. The body of Willett's 19-year-old wife, Lauren, was found buried in the basement. The Willett's infant daughter was found alive in the house. Family member Priscilla Cooper claimed Lauren shot herself while playing Russian roulette. This, as you may recall, was the same story they gave about Zero Hot, but this time the police didn't buy it. Priscilla Cooper and Nancy Pittman each received five-year sentences. Charges were also brought against Lynette Squeaky Frome, who was living in the house at the time, but they were later dropped. On September 5, 1975, Lynette Frome was arrested after pointing a gun at President Gerald Ford in Sacramento. She was sentenced to life in prison, although she was released on parole in August 2009. Manson's first follower, Mary Bruner, spent six years in prison after being arrested in 1971 for taking part in a convoluted plan along with three other group members to steal some guns in order to hijack a plane and ultimately free Charlie. She was released from prison in 1977, then moved to the Midwest where she changed her name and now lives in obscurity. Leslie Van Houten has been up for parole numerous times over the years. 
although in most instances, parole has been denied. In 2016, her parole was granted, although it was later reversed by an executive action by California Governor Jerry Brown, who claimed Van Houten still posed a significant risk to society. In 2017, she was granted parole once again, although at the time of this recording, Governor Brown has yet to take action on the request. Bobby Beausoleil remains in prison after being denied parole numerous times. In 2005, a selection of his artwork was exhibited at a Los Angeles art gallery. In 2013, an album of his music called The Lucifer Rising Suite was released. His next parole hearing is set for 2019. Susan Atkins died in prison of brain cancer on September 2, 2009. Paul Watkins, who testified against the group, went on to have a family of his own and led a relatively normal life until his death of leukemia in 1990. Donald Clem Grogan remained in prison until 1985. After making a deal with the prosecution to lead them to the dismembered body of yet another Manson victim, that of Donald Shorty Shea, a Hollywood stuntman and former Spawn ranch hand. Pat Cranwinkle also remains in prison to this day. After Susan Atkins' death, she became the longest-serving female inmate in California. Charles Tex Watson renounced Manson and his followers and started his own Christian ministry in prison, where he remains to this day. Over the years... Charles Manson has managed to keep himself in the news by conducting a series of bizarre interviews from prison, in which he appears to revert back to his old crazy Charlie persona he first learned to adopt back during his days in juvenile detention. It's difficult to say at this point how much of it is acting. In 2014, it was announced that Manson was engaged to a 26-year-old woman named Afton Elaine Burton, although the wedding license expired without a wedding ceremony ever taking place. On January 1st, 2017, the now 82-year-old Manson was rushed from California State Prison to Mercy Hospital, suffering from gastrointestinal bleeding. He was returned to prison on January 6th, although details of his treatment have not been released. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for following me along on this three-part series. There's so much more I could have included about Manson and his followers that this could have easily fueled a dozen more episodes. If you want to learn more about Manson, I highly recommend two books in particular. One is Helter Skelter by Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry. Bugliosi was the prosecutor during the Tate-LaBianca murder trial, and his book on the case went on to become the best-selling true crime book in history. Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson by Jeff Gwynn, is a more recent biography of Manson, And it's an excellent read that introduced me to a lot of new information about Manson I had never heard before. I want to remind you that The Conspirators is currently on Patreon. I want to thank all my supporters, and wanted to let you know that my current patrons can receive all sorts of great rewards, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course access to my patron-exclusive minisodes. I also invite you to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your reviews really helps this show grow. I also love the feedback so that I can improve as well. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, that's okay. We're also on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and of course our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks so much for following me along on this journey. I'm going back to my normal schedule and I'll be back in two weeks to release an extra creepy Halloween episode. See you then.